with Matt and Hillary. And I'm Matt. Oh, I'm Hillary. And we're reading Aurora now. We're not we're not on Mars anymore. We're on a spaceship. We are. We're on a we're not on Mars. We're on a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's true. But we're still it's still by Kim Stanley Robinson. It's a Kim Stanley Robinson uh centered science fictional utopian podcast where we talk about uh a book and socialism. Yes. And yeah. or communism or uh, and communism, socialism and communism. Uh, right, socialism, communism, and sometimes just like what happens in the course of our day or the weather. Or, yeah, know. it's cold outside. Oh, it's cold here too. Message to the future, it's cold right now. <laughs> we're going to be happy when we re-listen to this in a thousand years. We're going to be like, oh, wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. What was it like when things were cold? Because now everything is burnt to true. a crisp. I guess that's true. Yeah. It's 70 degrees in Antarctica today. What? It's 70 degrees in Antarctica today. On February 14th. Oh, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Message to the future. It's Valentine's Day. <laughs> My, in the future, we better fucking ha- not have Valentine's Day anymore. It's the most worthless, it stupid seems, holiday. Getting rid of that just seems so basic. Yeah. Yeah. Most capitalist holidays uh, uh, we need to get rid of. And Bernie Sanders promises to do that. Oh, yeah. I, do. I think that that is part of his 15-point um, plan to revolutionize America. <laughs> New, <laughs> New holidays. New holidays. Um, okay. Um, so we're going to talk about Aurora. And, and just the, the very first chapter, Starship Girl. Starship Girl. And um, uh, how should we go about doing this? This is my... F- Second time reading it. I read this through over the kind of winter break. And you've, of course, read this at least three times, I would say. Probably, right? I, I think this might be my fifth time. There you go. It. So I was right. Yeah, uh, you were right, as usual. <laughs> Accurate. Accurate. <laughs> um, so since, you, since you're fresher to the book than me, I wonder, like, how this first, like, how did just like the very beginning of the book strike you. So I like the, the beginning of the book, especially having come off of the whole Mars trilogy um, was interesting in a few different ways. Number one, especially the very beginning of the book where we're um, focalized through the character of Freya, who is a ambiguously aged girl. Um, We're not sure. a, A child. We think at the beginning, a child, we think, um, uh, who and, and that and and that kind of focalization is emphasized by um, the kind of story that happens at the very beginning. Freya and her father go sailing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know the fact that it's in the present tense actually kind of um, makes it seem like a children's book in a certain way, mm-hmm. uh, especially since it's like a girl and her father go sailing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the whole this this kind of episode of uh, this like sailing episode 
is really interesting because knowing as you as you do as the reader of the book that this is a book um and that this is a starship girl and that this is a book that's um set on a starship um you're kind of orienting yourself. Are they sailing before they get like on earth Mm -hmm. in a lake before they get on the starship? Um, Especially as a science fictional novice like me, you might be saying, well, there's no way they could be sailing in a lake on a starship. That'd be crazy. Um, But of course they, they are, um, Mm. which is like remarkable and kind of, uh, and kind of amazing that, that this kind of, you know, that a, that a whole lake or the long pond uh, with its own like wind system and weather system and stuff mm-hmm. can actually exist on this huge ship. And, on a ship. Yeah, on a ship. And that they can have a whole kind of genuine sailing experience. It's not like a simulated one. It's like there is actually some danger and contingency involved in this, you know. Um, right. I mean, and you're, you're led, you know, also the place where they are is called Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the deciduous trees on the hills wearing their autumn colors, yellow and orange and scarlet, all mixed with the green of the conifers. I mean, so everything at the beginning says to you, like, I mean, like you were saying, like, it has the feeling um, of a children's story or or definitely a story about a child Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and of being on Earth. I mean, that's that is sort of where you begin. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, I feel like beginning in a way that um, has, um, you know, is uh, brings out a lot of things that like Robinson tends to like to write about, like waves and being on a boat and uh, danger yeah. and like having a disastrous crash, but also things end up being okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, contingent events arise that um, people can, you know, rise to the challenge of overcoming. You know, in microcosm, this gives, you know, the th- this gives the kind of overall arc of so many of Robinson's stories is that you set out to do one thing and something happens to disrupt that. Mm-hmm. And then you overcome those challenges. I mean, that's kind of like all narrative. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> he didn't I mean, invent I was, it. <laughs> exactly. I was just about to say, though, but like, it's amazing. I think it's amazing that you're saying that since not in this chapter, but as the book goes on it it also does turn out to be a book that is um, is really like self-consciously about narrative and about making narrative. Yes, for sure. Um, and I, I think that this, um, you know, if you're coming, if you're coming into it fresh, like you can't, you don't, you can't tell any of that from the beginning, which reads, um, you know, it reads very much, it just like immerses you directly in this uh, scene of adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a father and daughter um but also so much stuff is getting set up even just in this very the first like you know three or four pages that that plays out over the course of the novel in like complicated and and like kind of theoretical ways i Mm -hmm. think yeah definitely reading it for the second time uh like especially finishing it once and then going back to the beginning immediately and starting again you really get a kind of sense of the patterns already being set up. Um, the kind of not circularity, but um, you know, uh, patterns and repeated um, repeated scenarios in different versions. Especially, essentially, I mean, repetition with critical difference is a, mm-hmm. you know that kind mm-hmm. of thing um, uh, is really 
quite striking. And there's, there is a lot of like foreshadowing already in the beginning, um, that, you know, we don't want to try to spoil anything for our listeners, but we do assume that our listeners have read this before and they, this isn't hopefully their first time reading it, but, um, it's okay if it is somebody's first time reading it. It is. It is okay. Everything is okay, guys. Everything is fine. <laughs> calm down. I mean, calm, down. calm down. It's all going to be okay. Everything uh, is fine. I, I say that at work all the time. <laughs> Everything is fine, everybody. Everything is fine. I, <laughs> nothing is fucked. Um, I like that uh, on page four, the, the long pond's water tastes like pasta. Yeah, that's great. It's a really great little detail that tells you kind of a lot of the, you know, it's one of those little hints that you're not on Earth. Yeah, that's true. That is a salty water, like a salty kind of pasta water uh, flavor to the the lake. (laughs) I also like, um, I love how um, Badim is one of my favorite characters Mm -hmm. in the book. Um, And I like him because he's really kind of a... uh, He's like a slow growth character. I mean, it takes you a while to begin to see just how how much of a person, you know, it takes a while before you really begin to feel that this is a person mm-hmm. in a f- kind of full-fledged way. Mm. Um, as opposed to like, oh, Freya is going to be the main character and Badim is her dad. Mm-hmm. But I love the kind of like um, this this mode of sort of like, inserting these like familial jokes or like ways that Badim like cares for Freya or, you know, makes her smile. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like, they're sort of uh, that it, it just, it captures very well to me that kind of like, um, you know, uh, like private communications that can happen when familial relations are going okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like the sort of, the sort of sense of like, um, you know, they're out on this adventure and things actually could have gone really wrong, but they end up being okay. But like throughout it, there's like, Badim is this kind of presence who is like funny and comforting and like Freya looks to for like information, but also companionship. And mm-hmm. there's something about that as a, a picture of a familial relation that is very like appealing and has a, has a sweetness to it, but like a meaningful kind of sweetness. I mm-hmm. think. Well, and they have in common, the, uh, they have in common Freya's mother, Badim's partner, Devi. Devi. And this kind of, you know, will she, will she be angry about the fact that we broke the boat? She will be angry, but not about that. Yeah. Because she's angry about everything. Devi is like, um, uh, man, Devi is just like such a great character mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things I think is really, so this first chapter is quite short compared to some of the other chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was rereading it this morning, I was thinking it's actually kind of amazing how much gets done in this first chapter. Mm-hmm. It's like quite efficient, not only in terms of like setting up like some of the like most significant kind of um, the things that will be some of the most significant kind of crisis points about like what life on this ship is. It also does an amazing job of like bringing you into the world of the ship in a way that is um kind of minimally does minimal exposition um but really lets you see and begin to intuit a lot of what the world is yeah but it also does like a lot of characterization work particularly of of devi mm-hmm. um in ways that i think are just like are yeah it's just like a very uh it it's a really well done opening chapter and it's kind of shortness um 
uh, yeah, its shortness is really impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything like there's a lot of stuff that's packed in there that appears very natural on first reading, and mm-hmm. then as exactly. on a second reading, it's like oh, there, you know, he's really laying in a lot of detail and initiating a lot of patterns, and a, and a, and a lot of. Uh, 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 themes here um, just at the bottom of page six where they're trying to figure out what the thing is that broke on the ship uh, he goes uh, Badim goes actually I'd better look that thing up and find out what it's called I'm pretty sure it has a name <laughs> everything has a name you know and like yeah. that that theme of naming that actually we've seen before in, uh, in other of Robinson's books is kind of really interesting here as it's pursued. Like, what do you call, what do you call things? Like, uh, it's important, um, what things get called, what, what, what names, uh, uh, accrue to different things, which it's part of, that's part of narrative as well as like trying to, the problem of narrative is like figuring out how to kind of describe something adequately and how to tell the story mm-hmm. about it. And then that gives it the proper name in order for you to kind of understand, you know, where it fits into the rest of the world and, and, and what to compare it with and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's like a sort of ongoing thing in this book that you see in the first chapter, which is also the, the sort of wondering whether being able to name something like being able to name a problem. I'm yeah. thinking of like, um, uh, island biogeography, which we get referred to here and we'll probably talk about more. Yeah. Like being able to name a problem is not the same as being able to solve a problem. Yeah. Or even in truth, being able to like under understand the, yeah. the problem, you know? Yeah. I mean, another important word that gets laid out here for, uh, is freedom. Uh, mm. Uh, when 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 she meets uh, Ewan and the yeah, kind the, of the, the ferals, the quasi ferals <laughs> or the, the ferals, would, the would be ferals, the would be ferals, exactly. And they claim to be free. And of course, you know, the whole concept of that is uh, a deep philosophical problem uh, that uh, the 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 book will kind of wrestle with um, back and forth. Another thing I I love in this chapter that I think is is also like both. Uh, like thematic in the novel, but also like conceptual in the novel are these, um, and also something that I, I think we talked about quite a bit when we were talking about Mars, um, are these problems of like size and scale, Yeah, you know, for sure. of, uh, you know, comparison is like one of the kinds of things that we're being asked to think about. But another thing I think that this book, to me, this book is like very much about is about like miniaturization, like, yeah. you know, because um, in some ways the ship um, is meant to be a world, and it is a world, but it's also like a model, model. of the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, a model of the world that is Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, like it's also uh, and and as a model, it's also like a miniaturization. It's like a scale model mm-hmm. almost of Earth. Um, uh, but then, like this is obviously like allied to the question of naming, right? Like. Um, you know, can you make a model of something that works the way that the thing works, right? Like, there's a kind of, like, uh, whatever. There's a sort of referential problem that goes between those two. Yeah. Um, but I love that the, you know, like, part of what happens over the course of this chapter is you you begin in this, like, open, it feels like a very natural scene, sailing, um, you know, wind, water, right? All And then gradually, like, both things kind of like close down as you begin to understand we're actually in a closed yeah. space. We're on a spaceship. 
Um, but also things open up because you begin to understand that this is a spaceship like out there, right? Like uh-huh. in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just thinking that on um, seven, right after that, that passage about the um, everything has a name, Freya mm-hmm. saying everything has a name. Um, then we get like the dot, 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 mm-hmm. um, the section break, which happens throughout the novel, right? It's yeah. all these like sections. Yeah. Um, and then we get the truth is her mother is always angry. And we have this like very like a, a distinct shift of mood here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like from this happy happy family story into what sounds like an unhappy family story, right? Um, uh, She can get obviously mad really fast, like instantly. And the way she slumps in her chair in the evening, staring grimly at the feed from Earth. So this is, I guess, the first moment that you know, right, that you're not on Earth. Yeah. Uh, Why do you watch it? Freya asked her one night. I don't know, her mother said. Someone has to. Why? The corners of her mother's mouth tightened. She put an arm around Freya's shoulders, heaved through her nose a big breath in, sigh out. I don't know. Then she trembled and even started to cry, then stopped herself. Freya stared at the screen with its busy little figures, perplexed. Devi and Freya staring at a screen showing life on Earth from 10 years before. Um, It's just like this is an amazing, like the sort of layers of estrangement from what you thought you were reading that happened just in that little section are kind of amazing to me. Particularly that suddenly like, Oh wait, they're not just on a spaceship. They're really far away from earth. Yeah. A 10 year delay. Right. right? Yes. 10 year delay. Um, they're watching reruns, I guess, uh, Nick, (laughs) Nick at night or something. (laughs) She's a film scholar is what I would say. She's just, uh, watching old movies. Staring at a screen. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I mean, like, I, I've very, like, I just wrote next to, why do you watch it? I don't know. Someone has to. She's staring grimly at the feed from Earth. I just wrote in the margin right now, Twitter. <laughs> I mean, like. Staring grimly at the feed from Earth. <laughs> as you described, as you described it, I was just like, oh my God, that's what I do most nights is just stare at Twitter and like shake my head and watch the world unravel. But, and it's. It, so it's interesting to make that comparison in a certain way because it's like, well, someone has to be watching this, right? And it's like, I mean, if you're thinking about Twitter, no, we don't. No. Get off of Twitter. Um, and also um, with with in Devi's situation, you know, why, what would be the point of watching the feed from Earth, something that's 10 light years away? that you have cannot affect at all that you can only be a spectator about, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, there is things that she learns from earth and that can't, that she can learn to, um, uh, apply to what she does on the ship. But then on the other hand, it just does seem like there is that other flip side of it, that, um, it might be an unhealthy kind of obsession in a certain way. Um, that that to live in that kind of mediated reality is, um, not helping the situation. But I think that she, I mean, I guess like, you know, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that there is something that is probably not good about her staring grimly at that feed, but, um, I think, so one, I think most of Devi's time is spent just like so much in the immediate because she is the problem solver, right? So she's another engineer. I mean, in some ways she's like... She has some things in common with Nadia, right? Obviously, um, mm-hmm. in that like, um, 
just this like relentless competence mm-hmm. um, and a kind of willingness, or maybe not even a willing, well, not like a willed willingness, just like a her like what her life is well, is a, like being you, the one who's competent. Predis, yeah, she has like a, maybe whether it's a willingness or a predisposition, whatever, to make decisions. You know, and to be able, I mean, not only to be able to come up with problems, but to like enact them. I mean, come up with solutions, but to enact them um, and not bend people to her will, but just she has a quality that people naturally just call her the chief engineer, even though she doesn't want to be called that, right? It's a team. So that, that, that line between her willingness to do things and just people's, the way that she kind of falls into positions of leadership uh, because people look to her for, for that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think I was thinking that it's like, you know, some of it is, I mean, this is a person who is like stubborn. Yeah. Yeah. And and in that way, like she's also, she's a willful person too, I think. But I think there's something in the way that she has come to live. I mean, we're seeing her after she has just been doing this for a substantial amount of time. Right. Right. There's something in the way that she's come to live in which, like, this is what I was thinking about, like, is it willed or or not? Mm -hmm. In which this is just, like, she lives in her practice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that has these, that makes her angry, probably partly because she's exhausted. Yeah. Um, But also, so, so, you know, like, her, her life during the day is about, very much about being just, like, in the immediate. Because, as you were saying, like, um... People just like take her to be the person that they call on to solve problems. Yeah, and she has to respond to that. She just does. She just right. does it. She just responds to it constantly, and she's constantly angry at like other people's comp- incompetence. She's constantly angry about like you know the things that the designers of the ship did mm. not think about. Yeah, their bad planning, their bad decision making. Yeah, she's constantly angry about shit that like she's not gonna be able to do anything about. Right, like the developing what she calls the metabolic rifts on the ship. Right, right? all of the problems of imbalance that are coming out. But then at night, I mean, when she's watching the feed, I think it is like, as you were saying, like there's something that's unhealthy about it. But it's like part of her is also she's like the. Um, she is a kind of record keeper, mm-hmm. right? I mean, she is the person. Now, there may be other people who are watching the feeds. I mean, we don't know. And it mm-hmm. may be that Devi thinks she's the only one who's doing it. But in some ways, like, part of the way that she thinks about what she does is she thinks about being the one who is, like, logging things, yeah. you know? You know, not just the immediate problems, but the long story, yeah. too. And I think that is this kind of... You know, there's something that's clearly painful about what she's doing, mm. um, but also, you know, it's an a- it's an aspect of her kind of like her form of life is also that she's going to be the one who's going to like be tracking. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The- which is just to say, like, slightly different from looking at Twitter, in which you you know we perhaps genuinely don't need to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like actively working against perhaps. us. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and yeah, I, uh, the, the, um, going back to, I was just on, on page nine, there's that, there's a moment of her talking about the Coriolis force and, uh, that, cause it's slowing down on the ship because something else is happening. And, um, uh, she says, you wouldn't think that would matter so much, but we're seeing aspects of it. They didn't foresee the people who made the ship. There was so much mm-hmm. they didn't think about that they left for us to find out. 
that's good, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because as a child, it's like, oh, that's neat. We get to figure something out. Uh, and she says, maybe so. Maybe so. It's good unless it's bad. We don't know how to do this part. We have to learn as we go. Maybe it's always that way. But we're in this ship and it's all we've got. So it has to work. But it's 12 magnitudes smaller than Earth. This gets to the scale aspect. Mm. And that makes for some differences they never thought through. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that, that feeds into her anger and resentment about the people who made the ship, who, of course, we will come to find out are, are long dead, centuries right. dead. Right. Um, and uh, but the, that issue of scale and I'm glad you brought up model, right, because like the model of a thing is exactly not the thing no right. matter no no matter wh what scale you make it in it's not going to be the thing and so the problems of the model are not the problems of the thing they're the problems of the model mm. and so mm -hmm. um the the task is not to under not you know we think of this this the the, the practice of modeling as um if we can build a model of something that we can learn uh then we can apply what we learn about the model to the original. But in fact, what ends up happening is that the model becomes as curious to us as the thing itself, because why do things work in the model differently than they work in empirical reality? Um, so there's, th that's like a fundamental problem of, of modeling is, is, a, is, is sort of adjusting it to, you know, the fact that we don't know how the model works either, even though we've, we've built it. Right. And that kind of like relates to the whole fact of the ship being a quantum computer that no one on the ship really knows how it works, but the people and the people who do are the math people and they know how it works theoretically. Right. But they right. can't trans translate that perfectly to the engineering people who need to know how it works practically. And so there's this always this gap, which is, similar to the metabolic rift um, of the biological systems on the, on the, on the ship that um, we know how they're supposed to work theoretically, but they, they don't work that way. It's like, just like that t-shirt at university of Chicago. It works really, it works fine in, in practice, but how about in theory? Is that what it is? Cause it's the reversal yes. of the yeah. thing. Yeah. That's uh -huh. all very good in practice, but how does it work in theory? Exactly. Um, uh, we become so fascinated with the theories that and, and the images that we create of our of our of our life that that we 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 um, something gets lost in translation uh, in terms of figuring out how the real world world actually works. Well, and also here we have this kind of I mean, you know, so we have the idea that you can like, which is you know a. Uh, a classic science fictional idea, but also an idea that I think that some people think is um, like a real idea too, or a real world or a this world idea, um, which is that like, oh, you could make a ship that was like self-contained um, and allowed for um, the long-term like multi-generational thriving of human, but of necessity also other life so that like we could go out and quote unquote colonize another mm -hmm. planet. Right. Um, and it, I, I think that one of the things that's interesting about the sort of, um, the way in which our attention in this chapter and then really throughout the book is, and beginning here quite explicitly as Freya's parents 
are explaining to her, you know, this is what like a magnitude is, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, they're like, we're we're getting certain things explained to us, like because uh, Devi and Badim are explaining them to Freya. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, as we the readers begin to think more and more about like the smallness of this recreation of Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Which you know, it's not exactly a recreation of Earth. Obviously, it's not shaped like Earth. Um, but the big the big thing I think we're begin- getting sort of in the beginning is the idea of it as like the miniaturization or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the other thing that that then makes us think is not just about the ship, but about Earth, like the place where we are reading this from. And, you know, like one of the problems that is emergent on the ship is just purely a problem of like, smallness and smallness and self-containedness mm. right so that it is like an island mm-hmm. um in a certain kind of way um and then we begin to think like well maybe these things work on earth because earth is the size that it is exactly right right and then we're having this thought that's not about a ship but about a planet and it's the kind of thought that it's really hard to have um about our lives as they're lived right that they're lived um on this planet um, and they work in certain kinds of ways, right? Um, both for us as individuals and us as like, you know, populations of creatures um, because of a whole bunch of coincidences yeah. that all revolve around something also about the scale of the planet that yeah. we live on, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting when they describe the magnitude, when she describes the magnitude thing, um, she goes... Uh, mag- tell me again about magnitudes 10 times bigger or smaller that's right so even one magnitude is a lot and 12 that's 12 zeros tra- tacked on a trillion that's not a number we can imagine very well it's too big so here we are in this thing yeah yeah. and it has to work so it you know it, it goes it cuts both ways like okay you have you have a planet that's a trillion times the size of the ship that's too big for us to like understand so you know, what you might think is, oh, well, if we create something one trillion times smaller than that, then it will be easier for we us to understand. We could understand it, yeah. But yeah. no, it turns out it's it's yeah. equally impossible to understand. Um, and that, you know, the that the things that keep things operating or that cause things to break down might just be contingencies or, or in fact are contingencies and that we don't, and we spend like our entire lifetimes trying to understand why that happens. Like... Um, and 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 why an equilibrium why something that seems to be in equilibrium might not actually be and why something that uh is in equilibrium can suddenly break down um i mean one of my favorite um bits from this chapter is the on um when we come back to the coriolis force on page 15 to 16 mm-hmm. and here we're getting like a uh narrative voice telling us this um the coriolis force mm-hmm. is the push side so we've already heard about it from debbie mm-hmm. um the coriolis force is the push sideways you can't feel whether you can feel it or not however it still pushes the water so now that the water has the deceleration pushing it sideways they have to pump water across to the other side of the biomes to get it where it used to go mm-hmm. they have to replace the force in ways that don't actually work very well in comparison to it they have planned for this with the pumping of water but they haven't been able to make up for the altered pushes inside plant cells, which some plants are turning out not to like. There was a little push inside every cell that is altered now, which is maybe why things are getting sick. It doesn't make sense, but then neither does anything else. Mm-hmm. On Devi goes, talking and talking as they make their rounds. It's not the Coriolis force that matters, it's the Coriolis effects. Those were never accounted for, 
except in people, as if people are the only ones who feel things. How could they have been so stupid, Frances? <laughs> but the I love the kind of like, um, you know, just like we're getting these like uh, just repeated kind of like refigurings or like drawing of our attention to something that we didn't know that we should pay attention to mm-hmm. and beginning to think that like not only that we should care about like um, the um, movement of water inside plant cells, mm-hmm. right? But that also, you know, figuring out like how human life is sustained has something to do with something as, you know, apparently like ephemeral or weirdo as like how plants feel, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's one of these, I think it's this like, um, for me, this this whole book, but you see it beginning in this chapter, is like really dense with these ways that help me think about what does it mean to like like think environmentally or think ecologically, you know, what does it mean to think about, um, uh, about being in an ecosystem, right. And, uh, and about like, uh, both large scale and minute scale effects as mattering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and that, um, so on page, going, going on page 12, um, you know, Debbie always wants long loops uh, for for cycling through this waste, right? Because the salt is something that's a problem. It piles up. Only humans like salt. We like it too much, so but we can't <laughs> eat too much of it. But we have to eat a lot of it in order to just cycle it. But in any of, no matter how much we eat, it's still going to be too much uh, for the natural environment to absorb. Um, which turns the whole play thing into a fucking shithole. Um, <laughs> but uh, we want things to never pile, uh, never, never stop looping, never pile up along the way in an appendix, in a poisonous, sick, disgusting, stupid cesspool, in a slough of despond, in a fucking shithole. <laughs> Debbie sometimes, now this makes me just think of capital and capitalism and billionaires. Uh-huh. I always just think about money like piling up in these like offshore accounts and these like fat fucking asshole billionaire like <laughs> Michael Bloomberg and you know money's got to <laughs> money's got to circulate right like just like everything else anyway um Debbie sometimes fears she herself will sink into a slough of despond Freya promises to pull her out if she does um they can't fix nitrogen why does nitrogen break so often because it's hard to fix ha ha phosphorus and sulfur are just as bad they really need their bugs for these so the bugs have to stay healthy too even though they're not enough for anyone to be healthy everyone has to be healthy Mm. even bugs no one is happy unless everyone is safe but nothing is safe this strikes freya (laughs) as a problem uh so yeah that that kind of sense of um yeah that that just kind of false sense of security that we tend to have about um, everything going fine until it doesn't. And then it turns out that the problem is much more complicated than uh, it seems at first. And even the smallest thing that we take most for granted, um, like bugs, uh, are like crucial to the system. They're, they're, in, they're, uh, um, they're uh, irreplaceable uh, in the system. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then I I think that this is also like doing, you know, running us through these things about the ship and what the ship is, um, about the set of problems. I mean, we're, we're like, we're not, we're introduced to the world and to it's really, it's most like 
significant problems at the same time. Like we don't get the kind of like, you know, let's get oriented to this ship and like yeah. how it works. It's kind of like ideal version. We get it, you know, already in the middle of like things needing to be fixed and things that need to be fixed that probably can't be fixed already into like the things that have been overlooked in the calculations. We get all of that simultaneously. And then to get that through, I mean, I think it's a really interesting move to have that come so much through um, the position of being a child, uh-huh. you know, and uh-huh. having things explained to you, yeah. um, but also picking up on things. Cause a lot of what, a lot of what we learn here is Freya picking up on stuff that presumably Devi doesn't really think that Freya is picking up on. Yeah. I mean, like, she has her moments where she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to scare you. And yeah. Freya's like, oh, I'm not scared, right? It's not, you know, like, she's not really seeing the big picture in the way that Devi is. Yeah. But she also, like, is seeing way more about why her mother is angry and the limits of her mother's control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, than I think Devi can possibly mean for her to see. So, yeah. like, it's not, so I think that this chapter, like, there's a little, um, to me, this chapter has this little resonance with like um, like Frankenstein or something where mm. we're seeing a creature learning how to understand its world, mm-hmm. right? And coming to understand its world in ways that are not complete or total or, you know, like adult, uh-huh. but are also like much more comprehensive yeah. than we might think. And that, uh, which I feel like that, that really cha- that that makes this very different than if we were being like focalized through Devi or through Badim or just through an omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. right? Um, That's really yeah. interesting. So there's Freya accompanies um, Devi on her rounds, and when she goes to when they arrive at a place where Devi is um, addressing a crisis, Freya is put in a corner and. Uh, given like paints and things to do like things to play with yeah and so this goes to what you're saying about you know Freya is probably is picking up a lot of what's going on in terms of maybe not the specifics of what Devi is doing but the whole mood the whole mm-hmm. the whole sense of so like you know that we have this uh, you know we've created this image of childhood uh, in our culture that it's a, a moment of innocence and purity and um, that uh, once you become an adult, then you deal with adult problems, you know, and you have a more sophisticated understanding of the world. And here, because we we're seeing this through Freya's eyes. And as you say, like, you know, Debbie says, I don't mean to scare you. And Freya says, I'm not scared. Um, that's because uh, of basically a situation of crisis ordinary, right? Like, yeah, seriously. I mean, like everything is, you know, the whole shit house is about to fall down. That, that's a funny, like, uh, line on 17 <laughs> on really bad days. They have to hope the whole shit house doesn't come down on their heads. You know, this is like a child <laughs> learning these words in this language and it's very playful and fun. Uh, for adults, it's, you know, a lot scarier. Um, whereas Freya is just like in the corner, like, you know, playing with her paints and taking a nap and and doing these things. So, um, th- it's an it's just, it's just an interesting way of of approaching that that problem that like there is no ever 
like ideal originary situation that not, that that everything is fine. Like even the very beginning of the of the book, they go sailing and there's a huge crisis. Like yeah, they almost crash, yeah. and they actually break the boat. Um, so, you know, that's just li- that's just life. Um, I mean, yeah. and I think a kind of additional a sort of additional twist to that is that like. Um, Freya, the the thing that like matters the most to Freya. I mean, she's clearly learning things about the ship, mm-hmm. um, and like, given that like what we're taking in about the ship is not completely mediated through her, but like related to what she's taking in, like we have to kind of also understand that Freya is kind of getting these things as she goes along. I mean, maybe not like you know, at the level that her mother does, obviously, mm-hmm. but, um, but what matters most to her and where she feels that, you know, where we get the sense that Freya has the most worries and the most sense that things are not fine is in her family, right? And in particular in her sort of worries about and her relation to her mother, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a way in which we, we not only have the kind of like, um, you know, we have this big absent thing, which is Earth, and then we have the ship that is the 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 miniaturization of it. We also, in this chapter, know, although we see very few other people, um, we know that the ship is full of people. Mm-hmm. And then we have a kind of miniaturization of that in the family, in this central f- family who we're paying attention to. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, is... Th- is the family like a microcosm or a model of the whole? Well, probably not. But on the other hand, like all we have, the details that we have about, you know, human life on the ship are coming to us through Badim Devi Freya. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also, Freya is also like, we begin to understand her as someone who is quite sensitive. And like that scene when she, when I can't remember where it is, but when Devi gets home, late and Freya like makes her scrambled eggs for dinner is like a really crazy refiguring of what we've thought about Freya because at the beginning we think of her as like a little little girl yeah you know you know holding her mom's hand and like uh you know sitting in the corner and playing with the the paints and stuff that are left there for when kids have to come to work right, right. yeah um and then we learn that she's taller than Devi yeah and Taller than her dad, taller than Badim too, and then she's like also cares for her mother. She's yeah. like providing care for her mother, just as like you know we see both Badim and Devi in different ways providing care for Freya. And at that point, we kind of you know then and eventually like we learn she's fourteen years old, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. which then completely refigures what we you know like whatever it was that we thought we were reading. Suddenly, we're reading something that is somewhat different than that. Do we right? get her age in this chapter? I think so. Okay. Um, let me see if I can find. So it. I know we're. Maybe it's like when they're talking at the end. When when when. Badim, it is when they're talking at the end. When Badim and Devi are talking. I think. Um, yeah, on on thirty nine. Um, which. Oh, there it is. She's fourteen years old. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's like. Even the, so, this this is the end of the chapter, but I kind of feel like it makes sense to think about this, even though this comes as kind of a revelation at the end of the chapter. I think it makes sense to just think about it, right? Mm-hmm. That like um, we see, 
we see Badim and Devi arguing. Like, we learn in that section um, that they do argue a lot at night uh-huh. and that Freya hears that and knows that they argue. And in this case, she's listening to what they're arguing about. And Devi is saying she's not normal. Right. She's slow. Right. And right. Badim says this, like, you know, extremely lovely. She always comes through. Slow is not the same as deficient. It's just slow. A glacier is slow, too. But it gets there and nothing stops it. Freya is like that. Right. Um, and then Devi makes this, like, really kind of remarkable and troubling move. She says, BB, I wish it would be true. But think about these tests. She's not the only one. Mm-hmm. A fair percentage of her cohort has problems. It's like a regression to the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, she goes on, it's clear the ship is damaging us. The first generation were all supposedly exceptional people, although I have my doubts about that. But even if they were, over the six generations, we've recorded shrinkages of all kinds. Weight, reflex speed, number of brain synapses, test scores. It's straight out of island biogeography, clear as can be. And some of that involves regression, including regression to the norm, reversion to the mean, whatever you want to call it. It's gotten our Freya, too. I don't understand exactly what it is with her because the data are inconsistent, but she's got a problem. She's slow. She's got some memory issues. When you deny that, you don't help the situation. The data are clear. Um, And, you know, Badim responds saying, we don't know what's going on. The data are not clear, you know, and also don't yell so loud because she can Uh hear us. Um, But here we have another sort of instance in which, like, you know, Devi is reading Freya as, you know, like an instance of a larger scale problem they're having on the ship. Mm-hmm. And Badim is basically saying, she's our daughter and like, this is what she's like, but it's not deficient. She's just like, this is just what she's like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which then like, at this point, then the chapter, I, for me anyway, the chapter really changes because yeah. then I'm I'm thinking about, um, and, and, you know, the chapter ends with Freya having overheard this and crawling into bed and crying and you know then like we have this very different kind of scene of family life a different sense of who freya is of like how we've been like you know sort of misreading her as we've gone along Mm -hmm. it's like an intense it's to me this is like a very intense kind of ending to the this section of the book yeah for sure i mean and i also like relate to or you know i i i Devi, Devi's, it's not just, uh, you know, Devi's concern is with Freya, but it's also with like all the children on the ship and the the whole population yeah. as well. So it, as you say, it's kind of Freya serves as a kind of microcosm for the, for what she perceives to be a larger problem at the bottom of 40. She says, I wonder what would become of them. They aren't very good. We keep getting worse. The teaching gets worse. The learning gets worse, um, which is, you know, she has a lot of data to back this up, but it can't help but uh, remind it can't help but remind me of like um, my own complaints as a teacher of like why won't my students take notes? Why won't <laughs> you know? It's like it you know it seems like their writing is getting worse, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that's only one aspect of uh, what's going on uh, in both in the book and in my own. <laughs> teaching right but um it does feel like that sense it, there's a little bit uh, of that sense of like kids today uh in a, in a certain way uh you know kids today are the the young gener this kind of paranoia about the young generation yeah having yeah. a major falling off and the line between again like in terms of like thinking about modeling and test results versus you know reality 
um, is a very th- thin one. It's hard to know. Uh, and Badim is is playing a good devil's advocate with with Devi. It's hard to know, you know, what these test results mean. Um, and especially from our point of view as adults, uh, we we have a very skewed um, understanding of what's actually going on with with younger people uh, in a way. So. Yeah, I mean, and I I think you know one thing that is that's funny about that passage is like you know the problem that um, they're like two there are two problems. One is this like sort of the what she calls island biogeography so the idea that within like a circumscribed population that has nowhere to go right right you get emergent um like i guess like genetic kinds of problems that happen because of the lack of this like uh circumscribed lack of diversity within the population Um, but the other thing that's funny about it is like she calls it reversion to the norm right and we have this idea that like everyone who got on the ship in the first place six generations ago right was quote unquote exceptional right and now and now so you know then if 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 uh freya is reversion to the norm then i suppose her slowness is also like devi would also find us quite slow yeah exactly she clearly would right (laughs) yeah exactly like it it one also like then doesn't that imply that Devi herself is slow compared to five generations before? Right, presumably. So it's kind of a really, you know, pessimistic view of humanity, like that there's some like er generation back in the day of like these kind of golden gods who, you know, had, you know, such uh, great powers and, and were so exceptional. But then at the exact same time, Devi is constantly complaining about how badly designed the ship is right right and how much everybody fucked up and couldn't couldn't foresee the problems that they would be that they that they would be facing right so it's sort of deeply paradoxical and and uh and you know unclear well it's also this like it's an anticipatory worry right because the the worry is not like where things are now the worry is that where things are now is a sign of it of like a sort of uh, increasing degeneration, yeah. right? So, like, um, you know, so, and then this becomes this very, like, in in a lot of ways, I do think that this is, like, um, you know, like you were saying, this is, like, you know, like, school, like, today, kid, today's kids don't blah, 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 right? right? But it's also, like, the position that a parent is in mm-hmm. when, like, they're, you know, the, like, second grade teacher is, like, oh, uh your your child is not reading yet they're behind right right right. and like well like what are they behind right i mean the child the child is gonna learn to read presumably on their own timeline and probably have a better time of it if they're not being told that they're behind but what they're really behind is is you know like some like mean or norm of what a second grader is yeah but but then the bigger thing that they're behind is this big picture about like what a like eight-year-old is supposed to be, what a 14-year-old yeah. is supposed to be, what an 18-year-old is supposed to be, what yeah. kind of job you're supposed to be able to get, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, and I think that like, you know, in the moment that we live in, like being the parent of a young child, like you can have like a conference with your like kid's second grade teacher and you can take away from that this, you know, like my child is never going to get into college, right, right? right? My child's life chances are already shot, yeah. you know? And they're, thus I need to send them to like, you know, tutoring or, right. or whatever, like all of these other like supplementary activities. So there's a, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, 
And then we also just have this sort of question of like, you know, Devi's insistence is we need to like be, you know, even if we leave aside her sort of like being sure that the data are right, her insistence is like, we have to be realistic that like Freya is not like, you know, uh, cognitively maturing in what we think is a normal way or slow. And, uh, you know, Badim's insistence is instead Freya is Freya, right? She's not like a type of something. Mm-hmm. Um, she is an she is an individual, which I think connects to that thing that you something you said, like you know, um, when we're just starting off talking about how much another kind of uh, theme that comes out of this chapter are these questions about free about freedom, mm-hmm. right? Because like Badim has this reading of Freya that says um, we should just let her be her and you know we see that she is like managing her life and moving forward and she is fine and we don't need to compare her to some developmental timeline Mm -hmm. right um but for Devi, that's like a kind of wishful thinking and i think in there we have this kind of question about like you know um yeah about about freedom Mm -hmm. right um yeah so the that moment when that comes up is when she meets Ewan and these feral boys who are kind of like a Tom Sawyer crew. Um, <laughs> right? Like they're mischief and, makers. Yeah. And a, a little like the two, the boys in uh, New York 2140. Right? For sure. Yeah. Oh, um, great. Uh, who we also, who we also meet uh, on a boat at the very beginning. Um, and, and who like uh, portray themselves. they, one of them has the great story of like, uh, I just like crawled up out of the water and onto the dock and they found me there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? right. That's like his birth story. Oh my God. I yeah. That. Um, mm. But, um, but it, it, that's another, uh, th- so one quick note is that by the end, when we've realized that she's 14, one of the things that we reflect back on is her interaction with these young boys because she's constantly picking up rocks to defend herself and all this kind of stuff. So things that we associate with like a little girl, like eight or nine years old. um, In fact, you know, this is a 14 year old who's, who's actually um, doing this. And like these boys must be, you know, rather younger than her. um, And because they're sort of trying to take advantage of her in a a certain way. But um, Ewan has a uh, foxy face. That is attractive, even in the dusk, with his stained lower face like a black muzzle. He's constantly, uh, you know, described as a dog or, or a fox. Um, isn't there a there's isn't is it in Blue Mars where I think Anne meets somebody who she looks at and she thinks he has a she thinks of him as having a muzzle. Do you remember this part? Um, I think it's in Blue Mars. Are you thinking about like Harry White White man, White Horse? the hairy <laughs> white chapel or whatever the designer of the polar bear yeah 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 and she see isn't it Anne who sees him and she sees him as having he's described as having a muzzle i he, think maybe yeah i mean i think i maybe because i think he's also described as like a bear like kind of a bear type yeah bear of a man bear man yeah and um but then there's also like the uh oh i guess i'm thinking about the eye tooth like the, oh, yeah, the yeah. ruby eye tooths that, that that like the separatists have or whatever. Right, right. Anyway, like great animal imagery as always. Animal man. man animal, animal man. Manimal. Manimals. Um, 
What do you want? Freya says, are you ferals? This is on page 26. We're free, the boy declares with a ridiculous intensity. You live across <laughs> the plaza from me, she says scornfully. How free is that? That's just our cover. We don't do that. We don't, if we don't do that, they come after us. Mainly we're out here and we need a meat plate. You can get one for us. <laughs> and of course, they say, get your dad, steal some meat from your dad's lab. And it's like, that's human tissue for medical research. <laughs> Can't eat that stuff. Um, but, they, but they've literally dug out, they have dug out a lot of soil between two thick roots of an elm tree. They have a hideout that's underneath a tree in the kind of... Uh, you know, wild park area or in the park area. Honestly, pretty cool. Pretty cool. But yeah, very like Tom Sawyer-ish, you know, uh, very, very much so. Um, uh, or maybe it's like they're hobbits or something. I don't know what kind of 20th century, <laughs> Hob- 19th century. Not, they're hobbits literature. are not feral. Definitely no, not feral. no. But they live in trees. They do. Hobbits do not live in trees. Okay. Well, I don't know. I never read those books. <laughs> That's boring to and me. That that's all I have to say about that. Was, well, it's racist. It's racist. <laughs> oh, the book is racist. Tolkien. Yes, Tolkien is racist. The Lord of the Rings is racist. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Just putting just putting that out there. I'm not I'm racist not for saying it any further. I'm not racist <laughs> for saying hobbits live in trees. That's all I wanted to. <laughs> I want to set the that's record racist, straight. Matt. <laughs> um. So anyway, you need to understand their race better, the race of the little hobbit people. The race of little hobbit people. <laughs> yeah, she gets involved with these uh, kids and they they go off into the kind of wild area and this and they get caught immediately and Debbie is furious with them because Whoa, she's mad. She's very upset, like shaking, shaking mad. And um part of the reason for that is that there needs to be like this wild part of the ship has to stay wild because yeah. They still don't know how it works, but they're pretty confident that, you know, you can't fully engineer, fully control every single thing. You have to let nature sort of take its course in various ways. Um, yeah, that's on on thirty seven. Yeah. Um, after after Devi's been so, so this is the second time she meets you and and the the, the would be or perhaps actual ferals. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, we don't even know if that wilderness is important, she says into Freya's chest, kissing her between sentences. We don't know what keeps things balanced. We just have to watch and see. It makes sense that a wild place might help. So we have to make them and protect them. We have mm-hmm. to be careful with them. We have to keep watching them. We have to watch everything as closely as we can. And there, are co- I think there are a couple of interesting things in here. Because one thing that we learn is that um, uh, people have chips it, mm-hmm. like microchips in them which does allow them to be tracked everywhere on the ship right um and so supposedly the um there either may or may not depending on like who you ask be colonies of people who have like removed their chips and are living in kind of like in between spaces right um and are not just living in in between spaces on the ship but also um are having babies, right? Yeah. Are reproducing in the in-between spaces on the ship. Um, so we have these. So one of the things I like about the, you know, like I was saying before that the, we meet the ship and the problems of the ship at the same time, rather than giving us like the ship and then revealing that it has problems. Instead, we get both at the same time, which is a very different way to. It's not only a different way to tell a story, it gives us a different thought about why you'd be interested in a ship or a world. Um, 
But then almost at the same time, as we begin to understand about the ship and its um, biomes, its regions, the way it's divided up, how it works, how it, how it has a gravity, how it has gravity, all of those kinds of things, almost at the same time as we get that and we begin to see that like, okay, here's the way in which human life is ordered on this ship, which we're just starting to get glimpses of here. You know, like clearly they have like um, a lot of provisions for childcare. A lot of work is done cooperatively, right? We, we're seeing bits and pieces of that. But at the same time as we're learning that, we also learn that there are people on the ship who can't be accounted for, right? So that there is one, there's like an official version of like, these are the people on the ship. Mm -hmm. And then there may or may not be some other version, a completely different kind of life and mm -hmm. maybe like a completely different world within that world that we're seeing. And then we have these boys who like, they just want to be part of that world, mm -hmm. right? Like whether because they're, you know, they're kids and they want to, you know, like be rebellious and do something cool or because like they really want to be free, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, and the word you call, you use to call that other thing is freedom, right? Like yeah. if, if this is what everybody is doing, then, then the alternative, the opposite, the, the not this must be just the the name that we find for that is is freedom it's and freedom. it's you know uh you could see why so like you could this is another example of like why you can see why like modeling or like just merely shrinking the earth um by a magnitude of 12 um doesn't doesn't work the same way at like the model doesn't work the same way as the original right because you could see why on a ship with limited feet with extremely limited feedstocks you would really want to be concerned about population like right. overpop like conditions of overpopulation um whereas those problems on earth uh i think there's a much stronger argument to be made that overpopulation um is not the biggest problem that we face but rather like our patterns of consumption and uh more like the the day-to-day -day problems that Devi actually does deal with, like waste management and um, ensuring that everybody has enough. Uh, everybody has enough. I guess that's a problem that comes up later in the in the book. Um, right. I mean, I, I think that so, I, I this is probably something we'll just have to talk about more as we're farther into the book. But yeah. I, I think that something that the that to me this novel handles in a really smart and complicated way is that um, uh, I, I think it's actually very, it is quite critical of the idea that what the problem is, is population or over or overpopulation. Right. right. It doesn't buy that story. Mm -hmm. um, and part of how it doesn't buy that story um, is by kind of um, uh, it, you know, like the to me, the very presence of the ferals mm -hmm. or the very possibility of the ferals, um, like says that any kind of logic that stems from like a pop from populationist thinking mm -hmm. can't really account for what life is on uh -huh. this ship, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to the way in which I think that like a populationist logic um doesn't is is you know like not a like ecosystemic logic either, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, and I, and I think that that's that is something that is I think quite interesting in the in this book to me is the way in which like you know it raises the kind of um, 
uh, it raises the sort of specter of overpopulation, but then it also, like, that is not the argument that it's making, mm -hmm. right? Um, the argument that it's making is actually quite a different one about what this sort of, like, set of, I mean, if it's making an argument, perhaps it's not. Yeah. Hang on one second, because the audio is doing that. It's finally doing that thing where there's a distortion. Can you hear me clearly? I can hear you clearly. Okay, you're distorted. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's weird. That's weird. Uh, it is weird. So you can hear me clearly. I can. Okay, well, then I'll talk for a minute, because I think uh, it'll record properly. Um, it makes me actually, what you just said makes me think about the character's attitude to the ship and how well that models onto our attitude toward the earth mm. because, okay, you're clear now. So uh, everything should be fine. Um, if you were to think of the ship as, you know, and this Devi and Badim raised this at the end of the chapter, you know, Badim says, we're almost there. Mm. And Devi says, almost where, you know, like Tau Ceti, is that going to solve all of our problems? Right. Um, if you think of the ship as a mean as a means of transportation, then that's that it, it, you know as like a, an interim period that you have to get through in order to get to the final goal. Mm -hmm. Then that structures your attitude toward resource management and population in a certain way. But they've been on it for seven generations now, so if their attitude toward the ship was this is where we live and this is where we have to manage our living or make our being essentially, then that's a different attitude, right? Yeah, like absolutely. if you have a, if you have a, some kind of like millennial goal in mind for like some perfect utopian society that's out there somewhere that you have to work toward, then your whole attitude toward not just resources, but toward each other, toward living is a different one than if your attitude than than if your attitude toward living is we're living, you know, not that we're going somewhere, but this is living. Right, and I think that this this relates both to like the frustrations that Devi has with the ship, because I think that something that you know is kind of implicit is that the people who designed the ship and thought about like what one would need. Uh, you know, like in a ship for this kind of journey, mm -hmm. we're thinking about it as exactly as you just said, yeah. like a journey with a destination. Yeah. And like at this point, yeah. it's like the Oregon Trail. We got to like get it's this much stuff <laughs> in yeah, order exactly. to get there. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and there is, I mean, I think that's also like telling, right? Because that I, I think that there is like, um, you know, uh, a distinct historical and mm -hmm. also like conceptual relationship between the idea that like, Hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go and we're going to colonize another planet and mm -hmm. like settler colonialism mm -hmm. also, right. Mm -hmm. The myth of the frontier and et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, so, but, but for Devi, you know, the engineer who manages problems every day, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, the point is that they're living on the ship. I mean, this, the ship is the world. Right. Um, and thus, like, the idea that it's just, like, this temporary, like, kind of cradle that's getting them somewhere is, like, that's just, like, not true at all, yeah. right? And more than that, it's not just that it's not temporary, it's that they are substantively, they, the humans alive now, are substantively different um, than the humans who got on the ship in the first yeah. 
plays, yeah. right? And thus, like, there is a kind of, like, um, you know, they are uh, adapted to this world that they live in, which is the ship world, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Not to some, not to this, like, you know, fantasy destination of Tau Ceti, but where they are. And that kind and, of, like, and which I think, this I think is just, like, uh, yeah, that's, like, a really core kind of, problem in the novel they're adapted not only they're they're adapted not only not to the destination they're also adapted not to the point of origination right they're adapted to the now and that just makes me think of like that stupid constitution that we have that was written by syphilitic slave owners who drank <laughs> beer all day like that's why there's are we have to live in their reality with drinking beer all day well you don't have to tell me that <laughs> Um, well, right. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then also, right, this makes me think of like, why does Devi watch the feeds from Earth? Yeah. Like, you know, when we were first talking about Red Mars, like, you know, one of the things that they kind of argue about while they're on the Aries heading away from Earth is like, are we cutting, we're cutting the ties of history to Earth, right? Clean, fresh start. Right. And like that turns out, of course, in the Mars trilogy, really not to be the case. Right. Um, and I think one of the reasons that she looks at the feeds from Earth is because she does have this sense of, like, um, you, this is not a fresh start, yeah. right? We're both, like, still attached by this, like, increasingly, like, attenuated, like, you know, thread to the place that we came from. But we can't get back there. We've become different than that, um, you know, like, and we're in a world that may not be, that is not a sustainable world. Right. You know, and yeah. yet here, here's Devi, like the person who's supposed to repair everything, who has a daughter who she worries about, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to the problems of history and narrative uh, in later chapters. And those are really great and really fun to talk about. Um, I want to bring up one thing before we start to wrap up. Me too. Okay. My Wait, thing did, is the, what is your thing? <laughs> the names of the characters. I oh, did, I did cool. some research, Hillary. Matt. Wow. Look at me. Look at you. Okay, so we have Freya, Devi, and Badim. And mm -hmm. each of these names come from different uh, ancient traditions. Freya is like a Norse goddess? Exactly. Hey. Freya is a Norse goddess. <laughs> and Freya is a Norse goddess who, or a figure in Norse mythology, who is, and per, forgive my pronunciation, a the type of thing that freya is or person that freya is in north mythology is a vulva oh wow v-o-l-v-a <laughs> with an umlaut over the o mm -hmm. and this okay. type of figure <laughs> is good at i wrote this down from like norsemythology.com so <laughs> forgive me if i mean it's a it's a reputable source i'm sure <laughs> this figure discerns the course of fate and working within within the structure of fate to bring about change. The vulva is an itinerant seeress or sorceress who travels from town to town performing acts of magic and shamanism, uh, working within the structure of fate. Um, these, these acts are called seder, S-E-I-D-R, in exchange for food and lodging. Mm. So important, cool. um, important foreshadowing, I think, there. 
Also, that's like a cool job. Fucking cool job, right? Fucking cool, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, you just wander the wander the earth and doing good deeds, just like the A Team did. <laughs> or Knight Rider, for instance. But much like Knight Rider. Just to choose yes. random examples that I don't have any personal affiliation or knowledge of. Just I've read about them. Um, uh, uh-huh. Devi is, of course, Sanskrit for goddess mm-hmm. um, and is the divine feminine. Um, and Badim is one of the names for Allah, one of you yeah. know. Uh, the, and 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 I think it, um, from what I could tell, and it um, it uh, the emphasis there that the name that name for uh, for Allah emphasizes or or denotes him as the originator, the incomparable, the unattainable, and or the beautiful. And that's from hmm. Wikipedia. Yeah, nice. uh, also a reputable um, also source. Reputable. I, I love Wikipedia. Yeah, it's a good source. Um, so those are that's my research about the names, and of course, names are so important in uh, in KSR novels. Uh, so I think it's worth uh, keeping that in mind. Yeah, I like that. That was awesome. Yeah. What do you do? Well, What's w- the thing you wanted to say? I was just gonna say um, something that. So I, like I said last time, I think I, I taught this book in a class last winter and one of the things that I had that feel you know like when you first like teaching isn't always like this but in this case I felt very much like oh I'm so excited because there are things that I'm interested in in this book that I haven't talked to anybody about Uh and so I felt like the class is going to talk about them yeah and we talked about all kinds of really great things but we did not really talk about this which is um the five ghosts yes the five ghosts um and I just like I I'm curious what you think about this but we get so after um on 29 um we're like learning more about the ferals and badim who serves on the ship's security council says okay there's a kind of controversy whether there really are ferals or not um uh you know maybe people are taking their chips out you know etc etc and Badim says, it's an old story. It comes up from time to time. Anytime a security case goes unsolved, there are people ready to bring it up again. I guess it's better than hearing about the five ghosts again. They laugh at this, but Freya also feels a shiver. She once saw one of the five ghosts in the doorway of her bedroom. Um, uh, the ghosts were supposed to be of the people who died in the original acceleration of the ship, the Great Scissoring. Speaking of names, right? <laughs> uh, Devi rolls her eyes at this old story, wonders aloud how it endures for generation after generation. Freya keeps her eyes on the plate. She definitely saw one of the ghosts. It was after they took a trip up to the spine and visited one of the turbine rooms next to the reactor when it was empty for repairs and walked among the giant turbines. That night, Freya had a dream in which the repair team forgot they were in there and locked them in, and the steam jetted into the big room to spin the turbines, and as they were being parboiled and cut to pieces, Freya woke up gasping and crying, and there in the doorway of her room stood a shadowy figure she could see through, a man looking at her with a wolfish little smile. Why did you wake from that dream, he asked. She said, we were going to get killed. He shook his head. If the ship tries to kill you when you are dreaming, let it. Something more interesting than death will occur. It was obvious by his transparency that he ought to know. Freya nodded uneasily, then woke up again. But as she sat up, it seemed to her she had never really been asleep. Um, so, yeah, I the on the one hand, we have the ghosts are there as this kind of like, all right, this is a sort of like story that people tell. Mm-hmm. And it gives us some sense that like 
there is like an emergent or there is a kind of like culture or like a folk culture like proper to the ship, right? Mm-hmm. They have yeah. like, you know, myths, tales, these things get passed down. They explain things for people. Um, but I also, I think that that scene, the scene of Freya's dream and then either her waking up or her continuing to dream the transparent man who says this like incredibly intense thing, something more interesting than death will occur. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really like that. I really like that. I like that too. I underlined that line. If the ship tries to kill you when you're dreaming, let it something more interesting than death will occur. I think that's so fascinating and cryptic and worth um, mulling over and, and thinking about as a kind of little aphorism. Um, mm-hmm. And then this ambiguity, I always love these kinds of ambiguities between, between ghosts and dreams and um, all like l- sort of linked up in the mythological culture, the, 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 uh, the mythopoesis of the ship itself and the ship's, the ship's population um, as this thing that they have in common that, that sort of that binds them. Uh, like Santa Claus or or whatever. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, and we know that like there are people who don't who think that the ferals are just a story. Yeah, but it does seem to be that the ferals maybe are not just a story. Well, right? and it and it in a little bit it as you kind of as you almost said or alluded to before, it doesn't matter if they're real or not. The fact that they are a story makes them real in a sense. Makes the the idea of them is important. You know. Um, the fact yeah. that you could imagine that there are uh, there that there is a group uh, who exists outside of the systems of the ship, the fact that you could imagine that there are or are not ghosts is what's important about them, whether or not they're in there they exist in the first place. That that within the kind of ideological system of the culture of the group of people that inhabit the ship, those things um, are part of the imaginary. Um, that's important. Well, and I really like the idea of, I mean, you know, I think that like, uh, obviously part of any story about any good story about a ship should probably involve a stowaway, right? Yeah. Should, and should probably involve like a part of the ship that is not officially part of the ship. Yeah. Right? That's where the stowaway lives. Um, or any story about a city should have a part of the city that's not officially part of this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that, um, uh, an underworld, yeah. An underworld, the the unlicensed sector, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it's going to be, right? Um, uh, you know, or just like you know the whatever the the alley the alleyway that you go down that leads you to something unexpected. Yeah. But I I like to me there's something that's like very evocative in the doubling up of the possibility of the ferals living in the in between spaces. Yeah. And like as we go along further in the novel, we see more and more of the in-between spaces of the ship, right? Um, The possibility of the ferals in the in-between spaces, like living in the spaces that supposedly are not the spaces where you're supposed to live, but then also the idea that there might be this space that's occupied by the ghosts too, you know? Like, um, uh, which is, as you were suggesting, like to some extent, like a, a mental or a cultural, a kind of shared cultural space, um, but maybe also that's a thing that we could think about in relation to the really great part in this chapter that is something that comes up again, which is like we see the ship as self-contained, 
we imagine that we're going to be able to get a glimpse of the whole thing and we keep being told we're not going to be able to see the whole thing. And one of the things that we can't see is that as the ship is moving through space, it's also being constantly penetrated yeah. by uh, by rays and by particles. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so that like, you know, this thing that seems solid and full, a world is actually like permeable and yeah. extremely vulnerable. Yeah. And it, in some ways to me, like the ghosts kind of go... Um, the ghosts are a thought that goes alongside with that, right? The mm -hmm. invisible stuff that's constantly trafficking through the ship and yeah. is actually sh shaping life on the ship, even though you don't see it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that, that's back on, on 21, uh, that something went wrong with the printers and it seems a gamma ray shot shot through the ship, a gamma ray shot through the ship and made an unlikely, unlucky hit collapsing the wave function in a quantum part of the computer that runs the ship. Um, uh, and it, it's, you know, thousands of neutrinos are passing through them right the second dark matter and God knows what all passing right through them. Interspe interstellar space is not at all empty, mostly empty, but not. Of course, they too were mostly empty, Debbie points out, still grumpy. No matter how solid things seem, they are mostly empty. So things can pass through other, pass through each other without any problems, except for once in a while. Then a fleck hits us, hits something as small as it and both go flying off or twist in position then things could break and get hurt mostly these little hurts mean nothing they can't be felt and don't matter every body and ship is a community of things getting along and a few little things knocked this way or that don't matter the others take up the slack but every once in a while something bangs into something and breaks it in a way that matters to the larger organism can range in effect from a twinge to death outright can be like one of their spoons knocking a flat house hmm. of cards. There's this other great metaphor in this book, in the, in this chapter that we didn't talk about where one of the things they do for fun is build houses of cards and then try to smash them down. And there's no telling sort of, uh, you know, usually Debbie is the best at it. Uh, but, um, there's no telling sort of what kind of hit will cause a catastrophic collapse. Um, and so there's this, uh, there is that sense of, systems as uh, trying to manage contingency and predict things. But then, of course, there's just luck. Like you can't mm -hmm. ever understand yeah. the whole yeah. thing, uh, even with a quantum computer, which itself, we don't know how it works. And also just a <laughs> completely invisible gamma ray can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, cause it to crash like a, a malfunction or whatever. Um, and yeah, I like the uh, yeah, I like that as a uh, you know as a as something to think about in parallel with with the ghosts, um, as uh, yeah a part of the imaginary that sort of structures their being uh, and their their the, the the horizon of possibility that mm. that they that they encounter uh, on the ship. It's a great chapter. It's a great start to this book. It is a great start to this book. Um, so we should probably wrap it up there. Mm -hmm. I mean, so for next time, we're just going to read chapter two, which is called Land Ho. Land Ho. And um, and that's we're going to start talking about uh, narrative a little bit more. And that's going to yes. be very exciting. Yes. It's going to uh, be awesome. So speaking of things, sm small little contingent things mm -hmm. uh, that can have big consequences, uh, you should volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. I traveled to New Hampshire on Monday to do Get Out the Vote for Bernie, and it was very... And guess who won New Hampshire? I mean, I'm not going to take all the credit, <laughs> uh, especially since the two towns that I uh, canvassed in, only one of them went for Bernie. Uh, well, you know, one out of two ain't bad. One out of two ain't bad. Um, but it was extremely gratifying. If you've never done it before, um, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is, um, it's a lot of fun, actually, especially, you know, you do talk to a lot of people who are already supporting Bernie and um, or whoever you want to support, but you should be supporting Bernie Sanders. <laughs> um, and uh, that's very fun because, uh, you know, solidarity, solidarity is, a, is a nice feeling to have. Yeah. And I think that like, uh, yeah, right. Work and work and practice really help you. Uh, feel what solidarity is it's true it's true and actually i was uh on the van that took us out i had to drive to augusta uh to get on a van and then we drove two and a half hours to new hampshire and there were like seven of us on the van this one guy um had never voted before until 2016 and he was like 45 years old or something he's like he never voted never paid attention to politics saw bernie talk uh give a speech and he was just like, oh, yeah, cool. And so he had never voted. He had never canvassed before. He was his first time doing this. And, you know, um, that's exactly the kind of person who – and he had a great time, and he was a really nice guy. And that was exactly the kind of uh, person that we need out there. So if you're listening that's, to this and you've never awesome. done any of this, sign up, especially if you're in a Super Tuesday state. Yes, yes, for sure. Or if you're in, a, if you're in Nevada. Or, or if South you're in Carolina, Nevada or South Carolina. You know? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I agree. I, I really loved canvassing in Iowa and I think we're going to start doing some in Chicago probably next weekend. Nice. Um, yeah. I'm excited about that because I, I do feel like just to return to our conversation about Twitter, it really is a lot better to be like uh, talking to human beings Yeah. Uh, and like doing some work than it is to uh, be looking at Twitter and worrying and thinking that like the Twitter discourse is the discourse. It's so crazy how, you know, just people don't, people behave on Twitter and online in general differently than they behave in real life. Huh, what? And one of the things that's so fucking stupid about all these media talking heads is that they go on Twitter and then they say, you're abusing me or you're harassing me on Twitter and everyone's so mean to me online. It's like, well, it's probably better than getting your fucking head chopped off by a guillotine, right? Like <laughs> to get like flamed in your mentions, then you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a you're really- You're saying they're not really being punished in the way that they should be punished. Uh, that's your words, not mine. <laughs> uh, you know. Yeah. But but in any event, you know, like, um, get off Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen to our podcast. Follow oh, yeah. us exclusively on Twitter at Podcast on Mars. <laughs> exactly. Don't respond to anybody's tweets because you'll just, people will respond back and oh, you'll yeah, feel bad right. the rest of the day. But you can really like everything that we post. You can like everything that we post. You we, can, love to, we love to be liked. You can email us at Maroon, at what is it, Maroon on Mars? podcast at gmail.com i believe that is what it is yep it's too long oh well dude i was trying i know know. oh it's not i'm not blaming (laughs) you i guess i am 
You are. Uh, you're bl- you're blaming me. Just a uh, little, but just a little bit. I agree. It's not it's not a great email address. That's okay. You know. We're doing the best we a, can. What is a great email address? We're not professionals. I mean Yeah, I could think of a great email address. <laughs> like Bong Ripper 420. <laughs> That's uh, yep. That's probably yep. Ta- that's probably taken. <laughs> it's probably taken. <laughs> it's probably taken. Uh, so follow us on Twitter. Email us at Gmail. Uh, keep listening. Tell your friends. It's not too late to start reading Aurora. No, and it, it is so worth it. Oh, by the way, I have an extra copy. So if anybody lives uh, in Portland or Augusta or uh, Lewiston, Maine, and they want to have my copy and just. Uh, hit us up on email and uh, oh yeah I'll, we'll have a you know we'll meet for a coffee and i'll hand you my extra copy of aurora that that would be our second uh, our second ever giveaway yeah that's right after we uh, did the giveaway for that uh mandolin you cut your hand on. yeah <laughs> i still have nightmares about that well not nightmares uh, but just i i still cringe thinking oh, about it's it horrifying yeah horrifying yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a really good reason to have uh, Medicare for all because had I 100%. cut that even if I had cut that, you know, like a 16th of an inch deeper, I would have been in like vascular surgery or something like that. And we probably our, our podcast history would probably have been cut short. Yeah, I'd be, literally. Uh, <laughs> I'd be in medical bankruptcy literally. at this point. I'd be in medical bankruptcy at this point had that happened. So Medicare for all. It's the only way. Medicare for all. Yeah. You know, let's expand our notion of um, what we all deserve and what we all should have. Yeah, man. Like you deserve it, guys. It's not hard. It's not hard. <laughs> it's we all know these things. It's really know? not. It's really not. Okay. Um, see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening. Bye.